This podcast is presented by Pacific Office Automation, proud partner of the Arizona Cardinals, and your one-stop shop for optimizing all your office technology. Visit PacificOffice.com. Problem solved. Is it caught? Is it caught? Oh my goodness, it's caught! DeAndre Hopkins caught it! He caught it for a touchdown! You've got to be joking me! Welcome to Cardinals Underground, presented by Pacific Office Automation. Visit PacificOffice.com. Problem solved. Touchdown, Kyler Murray. That defender is in multiple pieces. Oh, that was nasty right there, right? The latest news and notes from the guys who cover the team. Drilled by Simmons. Isaiah Simmons is balling. Bring it on, bring it on. Slammed to the ground by Buda Baker. Like a torpedo, he came flying into the backfield. I ain't scared of nobody. Here's Paul Calvisi. I still love the stat, guys, that Patrick Mahomes supposedly allegedly ran 497 yards over the course of Super Bowl 55. Now, there are two reasons I bring that up off the top here of Cardinals Underground, brought to you by Pacific Office Automation, proud partner of the Arizona Cardinals, because after I'm done with Cal Odegaard hitting me with the data and taking down uh, a lot of my points and or Darren Urban uh, using actual facts to refute other points that I make in Cardinals Underground, (laughs) I kind of feel like, and this will be the only time you ever hear me say those words, that I actually feel like I have something in common with Patrick Mahomes because over the course of a typical Cardinals Underground, I feel like I run almost 500 yards and have very little to show for it by the time we're done. Zero touchdowns, uh, you know, and just a lot of a lot of heartache, or in the case of Patrick Mahomes, a lot of turf toe ache. All he got was surgery 48 hours later after running nearly 500 yards and gotten the, the dog beaten out of him during the course of that Super Bowl. First of all, consider the shape you're in, Paul. I mean, to, to be able to run all that much. I mean, worst case scenario, you're just staying in such great shape for how old are you again? When you, I'll avoid that question and just say, when you're running for your life, the adrenaline takes over and has nothing to do with what sort of shape or cardio you actually have in you. Paul, you're the one who correctly pegged the Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl. So I'm the one that's backstepping right now with my horrible Chiefs pick saying they had the better quarterback. They were going to win dead wrong. And I should have gone with you because football outsiders was really saying that the Buccaneers were better than their record and that the Chiefs were not as good as theirs. And they thought Tampa Bay would probably win that game. You went with the analytics. You were dead right. I went against it. I went with my gut and I was wrong. Once again, proves that analytics are king. And in this case, Paul was right. No, you can't say that you went with me and then cite the analytics. No, that's no. That, I you just, went I, with the analytics. No, well, you I didn't, didn't know it, but you did. I cited one stat. I don't know if I cited with you guys or, or when I educate Ron Wolfley every Thursday night in the Big Red Rage. I did cite one stat, and it went like this going into the game, and it was Patrick Holmes with Eric Fisher as his left tackle, his all-time record is 27-1. and one. Now, without Eric Fisher, his all-time win-loss record is 3-4 and four after this loss on Super Sunday. So that's what I cited in that the parallels between taking down Tom Brady himself back in the day when the Giants had the, the fearsome pass rush. And then, of course, the Todd Bowles game plan, which I never thought would be that effective. I had the final scores 30 to 27 Tampa. So but but I tell you, I, I hate to bust it out this early in Cardinals underground here, Kyle. But tell me who was a better player on that field than Devin White. 
Tell me there was a better player on the field. We're going to come back to this more than once here. I'm out for blood in the first official off-season edition of this podcast. Vita Vea was a better player than Devin White on that field, but I just think the whole Buccaneers defense was fantastic. You mentioned Todd Bowles. The Chiefs did not play very well. I mean, I think that was a complete team effort. At first, I thought you were going to say Tom Brady was the best player on the field, so I'm glad you didn't go that way because I think it was just such a great team performance by Tampa Bay. Devin White played well. I'll give you that, but he's still an inside linebacker. Without Devin White, they still would have won that Super Bowl. It's funny that you bring up the offensive line stats, uh, Paul, because I will say this. you know, I've heard Wolf talk about it. It's been a large part of the narrative on, you know, how important it is to get that four-man pass rush and, and the great job Todd Bowles did. And those are all 100% correct. Um, but it also underscores uh, not just how the game was played, but the need for health. It, you know, we can talk all day. Perhaps Andy Reid should have adjusted better in terms of what they did offensively. And that's a whole different subject. Um, But it's not like the Chiefs had a bad offensive line. Their offensive line just wasn't out there. And perhaps it's it's more uh, of a testament to the Chiefs getting all the way to the Super Bowl as banged up as they were on the offensive line. Uh, The fact that that this all happened, because quite frankly, um, I think things probably would have been a little bit different had they not suffered those injuries. And I just, this is a, kind of a crappy way to evaluate a game in some ways, but I, I, it's hard for me not to look at that game in some ways and say, you know, this was just about the, you know, the right team getting all the right guys healthy. Vita Vea comes back from a, an amazing broken ankle to play as well as Kyle mentioned, and he really did. Meanwhile, the Chiefs were, I mean, did they have any starters left on the offensive line from what they were expecting at the beginning of the season? I'm not sure, but it makes a difference. You have to be healthy. Well, there's no doubt. And Eric Fisher injured himself, the Achilles, late in the AFC Championship game, right? So he was there for most of the playoff run. But the difference with and without Eric Fisher and then having to move and shuffle almost the entire offensive line, three out of the five spots, then had to shuffle as a consequence of that. I mean, it was stark. It was palpable. It was evident. We saw it. He was pressured on 29 of 56 dropbacks, which is the highest percentage in Super Bowl history. Literally, in addition to running for almost 500 yards and just scrambling, he was running for his life and doing virtually. And then with combined with the too high safety look, which Todd Bowles, Kyle, used two-thirds of the time, if you look at some of the other breakdowns of the defensive scheme he employed, mostly in cover two, a lot of cover four, but that too high safety look, which, hello, Arizona Cardinal fans, uh, you've seen that before. In fact, I saw an article here just recently by John Clayton covering the Seahawks saying that Russell Wilson and the Seahawks offensive staff have to figure out how to deal with the too high safety look. That's what shut down the Seahawks offense over the second half of last season. Yeah, like you said, Paul, we've talked about these too high safety looks with the Cardinals a lot because it did give them problems. And I go back to like when Darren was talking about the the changes that the Kansas City didn't do offensively, and that was a really big talking point after the game. But it reminds me of our earlier conversation this season when a team is playing too high and you're not running the football well, when you're not doing the bubble screens and getting yards, 
like what can a coach call that's going to work? You can't do deep passes. If you're short stuff and your running game's not working, I don't know how you can blame a play caller for that. Like the guys have to execute. Clearly the offensive line wasn't getting it done. And I think that was just a pure talent advantage. Like they could play the too high and not let Tyreek Hill beat them. And they could double Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey when they wanted and still be able to stop everybody else one-on-one when you have that type of advantage in personnel I don't know how you beat that and Patrick Mahomes tried to do his best like you said running for his life twirling around hitting his own players in the helmet a couple times um, but they just didn't get it done and the, the Tampa Bay defense was fantastic in this game Todd Bowles did a great job but I think the players deserve a lot of credit too I mean you're talking about a Bucks defense that without Vita Vea most of the season was best in the league against the run and then if you get to a point where you're saying well go ahead run against us and they know how to defend that that's a that's a tough that's a tough twosome I will say I never would have guessed that the Chiefs would have been without a touchdown you're just so used to uh, them being able to pull out the magic and do those things. But um, ultimately I feel a little bit stupid too, just because um, it, it did become clear that the Buccaneers were probably a better team than their record indicated. But again, they, the things they did to get to the Super Bowl, everybody wants to talk about them playing at home, but they won three road games to get there. So that's an accomplishment. And, uh, and the other thing too, and again, this is taking nothing away from the, what the Bucks did, but, you know, when the game was still close, when things could still turn, uh, the Chiefs managed to find their way into way too many penalties to keep things going, to think, keep things alive. And I, I think that really changed a lot, a lot, a big part of the game. So Tampa, to finish their season, beat Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, and Patrick Mahomes. Hashtag, they earned it. So that, that's called earning it, right? Now, if I pose the question, what did we learn from this Super Bowl, or perhaps the inverse of that, what did this Super Bowl teach us? Did I just both hear you guys say that, oh, maybe it's not a passing league? Is that what I'm, is that what I'm construing here? Uh, because, Darren, you've come around to Kyle's thought, uh, you know, this groupthink that has been pervasive here at Cardinals Underground. It's a passing wait, league. Wait a minute. Um, it's a passing league. If the only way to beat the two-high safety look is to run the ball, and oh, oh, I don't know. I'm just looking here at the fact that uh, you had the run game for the Bucks. They ran it 33 times for 145 yards rushing between Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette, and Tom Brady actually attempted fewer passes than rush attempts, only 29 passes. Maybe, just maybe it's not a passing league, Kyle. The, the running game did not win the Super Bowl for Tampa Bay. I don't know what, what game you were watching, but that didn't matter that much. I, I do agree with you where there's a natural evolution for defensive coordinators, and Vance Joseph has talked about it. He says, we don't really care anymore if teams run the ball efficiently because it's all about stopping the pass. And I do think you're going to see a bunch more cover two and cover four just to not let teams have the big plays. And you could tell that Patrick Mahomes kept on looking downfield for big chunk plays and he had to run or he had to dump it off or he got sacked. They just weren't there. And I think that's how defenses are going to start playing it. Um, so I still think it's a passing league because everybody wants to pass and everybody wants to stop it. But I do agree with you where if teams are going to keep on doing light boxes defensively, you're not going to have much option but to run more because 
you're going to have to get five yards of carry. And if you do that, then all of a sudden the offense is going to open up because the defense has to adjust. But I don't think a lot of defenses are going to go into game plans next year saying our first thing is to stop the run. They're going to stop the pass first. I mean, let's look at a Paul, the Brady still threw three touchdown passes for however few attempts he had. The, the scores came through the air. And, uh, and, and that's, that's just, I mean, you're going to be able to run. And then when you get down inside the 20 in that red zone, you better be able to throw it because I'm not 100% sure you're just going to be able to grind out touchdowns on the ground. And again, there's just so many chances at mistakes. I mean, if, if, and I still have no idea what the Chiefs are doing, how they could have lined up offsides on that field goal attempt or that punt or whatever, whatever it was where they lined up offsides. Um, I mean, you just, you can't do it. The penalties is another great example. I saw a stat. I mean, we all know how bad it was for the Cardinals all season with getting the penalties. The Buccaneers were up there with uh, penalties midseason, a little past midseason in terms of number of penalties with the Cardinals, and they drastically cut it down the stretch. And that was another reason why they got on a hot streak is they weren't hurting themselves. You can't hurt yourself. Well, at the point in Tampa season when they were seven and five, I, I do believe there was a Tom Brady tirade of sorts, and a lot of it revolved around the mindless, critical costly penalties that the Bucs were taking during a mini losing streak when they were slumping midseason. And once again, they were seven and five Brady was irate and just exhausted with all the penalties that they were taking. So to your point, that was the part of making the run to end the season on the winning streak and hoist the Lombardi. I'm not here to say it's not a passing league. I guess I'm here wondering out loud if it's really a balanced offense league. For example, Kyle, didn't you just post a story on azcardinals.com where you said when the Cardinals offense has really been rolling under Cliff Kingsbury, it was the second half of 2019 when, wait for it, they had the run game. And the first half of 2020 when, hello, double ding, they were running the ball. So I'm not sure you can say it's a passing league when, for example, the Cardinals offense has only been in gear, truly been lethal in a top 10 offense when they've had the run game. First and foremost, thanks for reading my article. I didn't know you uh, went on and read all my stuff, and it's only been posted for a couple hours maybe. You, you've really gone over there, and maybe you have an alert. Whenever I write something, you jump on the, the well, website and check it out. Let's not get ridiculous with the alert, okay? But, you know, <laughs> I, just, you know I mean, I, I am Pauly Prep for Cardinals Undergrad. I've learned the hard way. I've learned the hard way. I better be buttoned up or I get earholed on this podcast. <laughs> No, I think I think the Cardinals are built a little differently than some other teams because of Kyler Murray's mobility. So I think the way that they're going to be successful offensively is what Lamar Jackson and the Ravens do, where you're a dominant run team and you're a pretty good passing team. I think that's the formula for the Cardinals and, and for the Ravens, teams that have a mobile quarterback. That being said, if Kyler Murray can all of a sudden reach an elite level with his yards per attempt passing, then I think then you're totally a passing team and the running doesn't matter. I just don't know if that's completely feasible next season, seeing where he's at with yards per attempt. So Kyler Murray could surprise me. And if he gets up to eight yards per attempt, then the running to me won't matter as much. But as it stands now, I feel like a big part of his game is the mobility and the way they can play off of that, where the numbers game in the box where teams are worried about Kyler Murray. So that's why I think this offense is built where they're going to be very good rushing the ball 
if they're going to reach their ceiling. And But overall, when you look league-wide, I still think the teams that have the elite passers, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, I mean, those teams were the best in the regular season because of the way they threw the ball. That's why, to me, it's still a passing league. It's interesting to me because what was one of the things – now, again, the, the instant um, – instant – reaction to a loss like that in the Super Bowl is tends to be a little over the top all the way around. The Buccaneers are not, you know, the greatest team of all time just because they won that one game. They're not even necessarily always going to be better than the Chiefs if everybody was healthy, but it doesn't matter. They're the champions and the Chiefs aren't as bad as they looked on that day. And I'm sure if they played the game again, um, there would probably be maybe not necessarily a different win loss result, but I don't see them getting beat 31 to nine again. And But one of the things that came out of it was something that we've talked often about with this team. When you start talking about this team needs to run the ball a little bit better and this and that, what, one of the reasons we talk about that, why? Because they don't have the weapons in the pass game yet to really be the kind of effective passing team. And what did I hear about the Chiefs with after everything else that's been said? Hey, maybe Mahomes beyond Kelsey and Tyreek Hill doesn't have the weapons he needed. Um, they've got some talent there, um, but having read some stuff out of Kansas City and read stuff around the team, uh, Hardman hasn't been quite what they were hoping for. Uh, the running back out of LSU, the name is escaping me right now, the rookie, he didn't. Ceh. Ceh. There you go. He didn't. He didn't exactly do what they were hoping for in terms of impact. Um, so. If part of the issue is, is they just didn't have that third pass catching weapon that they were, they, they could really exploit things with, which again, difficult to do in this day and age of a salary cap, you know, you can't pay all these guys, you know, maybe that's part of the problem. And when we talk about the Cardinals, I mean, I feel like they need to run the ball better or, or more effectively or with that balance, I get all that, but if they all of a sudden had three high profile skill guys catching the ball, I think that changes things. And that goes back to what Kyle was saying about how they're built right now. I mean, I think it comes down to your personnel more than anything else um, in terms of, th- I mean, you would have, and we've talked about how the 2008 Cardinals did find a little bit more balance in the postseason, but that's still that team's identity. And why did they come back in the Super Bowl? It's because Kurt Warner liked throwing all the time to three 1,000-yard receivers, and that's why they won the game or won games. It's hard to believe Tampa had one Pro Bowler. I, I did not know that. They had one Pro Bowler, Jason Pierre-Paul. That's it. I, I mean, talk about weapons. Mike Evans, Godwin, ne- neither guy made the Pro Bowl. I know Evans was injured here and there. and had So was Godwin. So – yeah, true. It just—it's remarkable, and a number of Tampa Bay players after the game cited that. Hey, one Pro Bowl—that's cool. We have the Super Bowl. Seemed to be a mantra in their locker room afterwards, which, which was you know, which was entertaining to, to say the least. Um, I, I tell you, if you were to give the MVP award though to Todd Bowles and what he did, first of all, can you even give it to a coach? You can't. It's player only, right? I mean, correct. Let's, yeah, correct. You're not yeah. giving it to a coach. But, but, but. What he did afterwards and what B.A. had to say afterwards about, quote, I think he got a little tired hearing how unstoppable they were. That was B.A. on Todd Bowles and the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. And then 
And then for what Todd said after the game, and here's his quote, we took away some of the underneath throws, and it takes time for guys to get deep. That allowed our guys up front to get after him, meaning Mahomes. The biggest thing we were trying to do was take away his first read, make him hold on to the ball to look at the D long enough to get after him. Okay, you could apply that to a lot of game plans, but isn't that, Kyle, what a lot of teams in the second half of the season tried to do exactly to Kyler Murray? Wasn't that exactly a similar approach? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I think, I mean, Todd Bowles, like you said, did an unbelievable job of, of setting his players up to succeed. I, I think anytime your guys win their, their pass rush move, I mean, within half a second and Patrick Mahomes is running for his life, a lot of it just breaks down at that point. Um, but I think if you look at some of the coverage stuff they did, it was, it was really impressive. So I, I think it, I think definitely teams will keep doing that. Like with DeAndre Hopkins, they're going to want to stop him and take him away. He's going to be the first option on a lot of plays. So I don't think that's a surprise to me. It's about getting that number two wide receiver to where the game plan that you're trying to implement defensively won't work because your number two wide receiver in one-on-one coverage can get open and it's an easy progression for Kyler Murray to throw that ball. So I think it all works hand in hand, like defensive coordinators can have good plans, but I still think the players have to execute it. So I don't want to take anything away from what Todd Bowles did, but I just think the way both pass rush and coverage work together in the Super Bowl for the Bucks to me was so impressive. You look at a lot of like the next gen stats dots on Twitter where they show the coverage and those guys are just blanketed. He didn't have anywhere to throw it. Todd Bowles put the guys in position to succeed and they succeeded. So I think the Cardinals offensively next year will have an idea of what's coming. DeAndre Hopkins is going to get double covered again, but can he beat it? Or can you find that number two and number three option to consistently win their one-on-one battles? And, and, and don't forget on this point too, again, when we, it's, that's why it's so difficult to have some sweeping. What did we learn in the Super Bowl? Because it's a moment in time with two teams that, yeah, some of it can translate to the rest of the league. Some of it can translate to the team you cover, in this case, the Cardinals, but not always. I mean, the Buccaneers did what they did, not only because they executed, but it's it's a lot easier to say, hey, cut off that first read when, A, you know you have four pass rushers most of the time, and Todd Bowles blitzed less in this game than he has for a long time. And you have four pass rushers that you know is going to beat this beat up offensive line. So you can drop seven people into coverage. It wasn't just that they had the two safeties high and it wasn't just that they were taking away the first read. They had the maximum amount of guys back there in pass coverage when he was throwing the ball. And you knew those four guys up front were going to win. Sometimes that's not going to happen. Whether I mean, you can try and do that, let's say, flipping it the other side if you're going against Kyler Murray. But if DJ Humphreys continues to play like he does and you get your offensive line for the Cardinals to hold up, um, that's a dangerous thing um, to do it that way because eventually it'll break down on the defensive side. That just What you saw in the Super Bowl, to me, is the flip side of – a play breaking down when Kyler Murray gets to run all over the place. It's the other way around where the breakdown comes on the offensive side because you have no time. Then if the other way, you know, sometimes the offense wins. So I, I think, I think some of this has to do again with a moment in time and not necessarily something you can draw a direct straight line um, because otherwise everybody would just do it every time you'd rush four, you'd drop seven, you'd cover the first read and we'd have no offense in this league. Anytime you, you can rush four and drop seven 
And then a lot of times when you're employing zone coverages, which is what appeared Todd Bowles is going with primarily, that heightens the degree of difficulty for virtually yeah. any quarterback. We know that. I mean, Kurt Warner tweeted on game day on Super Sunday that he loved it. I mean, he was begging defensive coordinators to blitz him because he was so confident he would find the liability, the hole in the defense when they brought extra numbers. And we all know when the Cardinals went up against some of their fiercest opponents, including those 49er defenses that were really rocking back in the day, sometimes they'd rush three and drop eight. And that's how you beat Kurt Warner. That's how Kurt had some of his worst games as a Cardinals quarterback. So we get all that. With What's interesting as we get back to, to B.A. is his ability now to outsource everything, Darren. R- remember, <laughs> remember early in his career with the Cardinals, he, he would share how he almost, he almost was responsible for his own demise as a 30-year-old coach, head coach at Temple, who by his own admission tried to do everything. He was the head coach. He was the coordinator. He was the play caller. He was the recruiting coordinator. He would handle all the equipment. I mean, he did everything to the point where he gave himself a heart attack. Now, is there a head coach who outsources more than Bruce Arians and and is literally just the CEO and ultimate decision maker? What's funny is, is he just said last week during uh, the week of, of the Super Bowl interviews, at one point he said uh, that the difference in Tampa has been he's learned to delegate. And one of the things he wishes he would have done in Arizona more was delegate. I mean, we remember this, and this is why it's funny when you hear Cliff and Cliff and B.A. are in much different places in their career. Don't get me wrong. But when you hear Cliff say, if I had to give up play calling, I'd retire. I mean, B.A. was basically saying the same thing when he was the coach of the Cardinals. I mean, this back in Temple. His quote was, if I find someone better, I'll give up the play call, and that's not going to happen. And that's not going to happen. And yet, when he got to Tampa, not only was he willing to give up the play calling, but he basically said he had to find somebody better. And he he said last week, there was a couple of assistants that had they not been available, he insists he would not have taken the Tampa job. One was Harold Goodwin, and another one was Byron Leftwich, and he wanted to give Byron the play calling duties. And the fact that he's willing to do all that, I think is – it's impressive. And I, I do think when you start talking about BA and going back to Tampa and coming out of retirement, and I know it's a sore subject with a lot of fans, but um, I think that was part of it was the mind shift. And I'm assuming it came about in that year off where he just was more comfortable in his skin, where he was willing to do that. And obviously it worked. Of course, it doesn't hurt bringing in the best quarterback of all time to play because all these things were in place last year when they were under 500. So let's not get too ahead of ourselves of, you know, that either. Well, and like Kurt Warner and BA expounded upon this after the game, when you have someone who's been there and done that, meaning hoist Lombardi trophies, the rest of the team buys in all of a sudden the rest of the team believes the rest of the team knows they have a guy who can take them all the way. And that was a big part of the Cardinals making their Super Bowl run to Super Bowl 43. Why is it that some of the Cardinals fans, I hear that right. Struggle with the notion that BA retired. Do you get what, what do we what do, what do you mean by that? Well, I just I think there's a there's there's some fans that are angry at him. There's they they it seems to fall into two. There's very few that seem to be like okay he retired, glad he moved on to you know it was too bad he had to retire, but you know we're glad he moved on. There seems to be two camps. There's the camp that feel like Bruce Arians, for lack of a better term, quit on the Cardinals, and they're angry with him. Or there's a 
uh, and anger with the organization that they feel like he got pushed out. And I just feel like being there at the time and you guys can disagree with me if you want. I, I feel like that retirement was exactly what he felt he needed to do at the time. I'm not saying he necessarily wanted to walk away from the game. I think in a lot of ways he got it in his own head that he needed to because of his health, because his wife wanted to go to the forever home. Um, sure. Part of it could have been that, you know, I I'm thinking, you know, Carson Palmer might retire and, and I don't know if I want to go through this again. I don't, you know, that's, that could be part of it too, but I think the retirement when it happened was organic and it happened exactly like everybody said, and I just don't think there's a conspiracy theory, and it just feels like there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. I think the first thing I think of is a man who went off the field on a stretcher in San Diego during training camp. Yeah. So the health reasons were real, extremely real. And anybody who was around him on a daily basis like we were, you saw his health deteriorate. He needed to get away from the daily grind, in my opinion, from what I saw, and hit the reset button. And, and then to your point, Darren, when he did come back, he delegated even more. And now at 68, he's the oldest head coach to win a Super Bowl ever. I, I just, I bought that. What The problem with the CBS thing, and he finally admitted it on the record, and we had heard this off the record for a long time, was that what he didn't realize when he took the CBS gig was that there was going to be more travel than being an NFL head coach. Because instead of having eight or ten home games every year, if you include the preseason, guess what? Now you're on the road every single week. And that's what happened. And you're on the road longer than you would for a typical NFL road trip because you're leaving on a Wednesday or Thursday doing the prep, coming in, watching practice, talking to everyone on a Friday, Saturday, doing the game, flying out that night or the next morning. You're only home two or three days during the week if you're a big-time TV network analyst. And it's not the same sort of high as being an NFL head coach. I mean, I, I still think broadcasting, he put in fewer hours than he did uh, than a head coach, but I, I still think the reward ratio wasn't there for him. Maybe he enjoyed doing it, but there wasn't like universal acclaim for the job he did. He didn't jump to Tony Romo level where everybody thought he was amazing. He was just kind of a broadcaster among a lot of broadcasters. So I, I, going back to him ending in Arizona, I definitely feel like it was a very natural endpoint to his tenure with the Cardinals. Carson Palmer retired. The Cardinals were moving into this new retooling phase. And it, it would have been kind of weird if he was going to grow again with them knowing his age. So I just remember his final press conference and he was tearing up. I mean, it was real that he thought he was done forever. And then you leave for a year and you've been coaching your entire life. And we know so many coaches that are dedicated fully to football where they don't have a lot of other stuff. And he obviously has his family and he has other things to do, but there's that itch that only football scratches for so many of these guys. And I think Bruce Arians realized that after a year on the sideline, even though it looked like a, a natural ending because of his age and his health problems, he realized how much he loves being an NFL head coach. And it worked out where the Bucks needed somebody. He had that relationship with Jason Light and he was able to bring so many coaches. So I think he, he, in his mind, he legitimately thought he was done coaching when he left the Cardinals. And I think it's natural to have that itch. And some coaches can't get back in when they, when they retire or when they get fired. Bruce Arians was able to have a vacancy he found and it worked out great for him and the Bucks. And now they asked him after he wins the Super Bowl as a head coach for the first time, is that it? Are you done now? And his, his answer, quote, hell no, I ain't going anywhere. 
I'm coming back to try to get two and we'll see after that. That's what I really miss about BA is the personality and the quotes, the stories that just write themselves based on, you know, because they then asked him a little bit later, if he ever envisioned this happening and Bruce Arian said, and I quote, no, not really. I think I would have been smoking something illegal to really imagine this. End quote. <laughs> well, these days it depends what state you're in. It's not that illegal anymore. So. I enjoyed, uh, he, he did a, he did a, uh, a segment with Jimmy Kimmel uh, from his house and he's uh, and Jimmy Kimmel's asking him some off the beaten path questions, obviously. So they're talking about the, the party and, and, and obviously uh, and Paul, I'm assuming you remember uh, the Cardinals party after the Super Bowl. And in most years when things are not COVID things aren't going on with COVID, you know, the, the party is so big that both both teams plan a party after the game. Both teams have a party after the game um, because you have it's such a big deal that you can't just whip that together. And it's so expensive, you're not going to put one together and not have it just because you don't win. Uh, so of course, we went and partook in a a party that uh, could have been a little bit more fun, and instead it was more about drowning sorrows after the Cardinals lost. Uh, back in 2009 early part of 2009 but but bruce was talking about the party they had i guess it was the next day the next night and uh they held it at an aquarium and uh so he's kind of talking about this and it was kind of funny and then at one point um you know jimmy kimmel was asking about you know what it was like there because of covid and everything and and bruce who had already held up while he's doing this interview a glass with ice and I'm sure a <laughs> fine beverage that would only be served in certain establishments yeah, during the interview. <laughs> um, he said uh, at the party, they told him uh, you needed to have your mask on unless you were drinking goes. So Bruce said, so I didn't have my mask on all night. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> he didn't even bring it. He's all, oh, that's the requirement. That's right. Well, you know, there, there, there won't be a moment when I'm not imbibing. So who needs to pass? <laughs> that's right. That's, yeah, that's Bruce Arians right there. That's, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's the cool uncle with a drink yeah. in his hand. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the guy. And, and now the whole nation has discovered that personality. So that's good stuff. Um, and you know what? There are very few Cardinals left who actually played for Bruce Arians, but one of them is Patrick Peterson. And now the question is, is Patrick Peterson going to be like the, the third wave of Cardinals to maybe join uh, Bruce Arians or go somewhere else? Uh, Kyle, what do we make of, can I even call this a report? What's come out in the last few days uh, that Patrick Peterson then actually dispelled decisively during his podcast. Get us up to speed on that. Yeah, there was an anonymous source from, I think it was a blog or something. I don't even know the the site, if it was legitimate or not, saying that barring something unforeseen, Patrick Peterson and the Cardinals were going to part ways. And Patrick Peterson came out on his own podcast, which it's nice when players have podcasts because they address this, these sort of <laughs> things. And Brian McFadden asked him if there was any validity to it. And he said it was just a dirty rumor. He hasn't even, you know, kind of exchanged offers with the Cardinals yet. It's the Super Bowl just ended. They're not there yet. So I think we're still in that holding pattern where Patrick Peterson wants to come back. And would it shock me if they're far apart in negotiations and he ultimately leaves? I mean, that wouldn't shock me at all. But it, it also would be realistic for him to come back because they're close enough in terms where eventually they negotiate it and work it out. So I think 
everybody's waiting to see what happens, but there's, there's no substantive movement yet. I mean, that was a report that was debunked by Patrick Peterson himself. So I think once we get closer to free agency, we'll have an idea. It's, it's an interesting question for Steve Kime because I think we can agree that Patrick Peterson is not the all pro cornerback that he was in his prime, but if you let him go, what, what are you going to do with, with number one cornerback? There's no easy replacement on the roster, is there somebody else in free agency you like that you're willing to give money to? Are you going to risk it in the draft on a young guy? Even if it's a first round pick, you don't know how, how those guys are going to perform. So I think it's a big question mark with Patrick Peterson and really both cornerback spots. I, I do think that Patrick was smart to say what he did. I'm not saying it's not true. I think it, it probably is true. They haven't made anything because if you're Patrick Peterson, a couple things popped to mind when he said all this. I think one, you don't want to close any of your avenues. You don't want to lose your leverage. And the more teams that could be interested in them, including the Cardinals, the better for him. But I always kind of felt like, I feel like this is a little bit of a Calais Campbell situation, meaning the Cardinals have a number in mind. Patrick probably doesn't think that that's a high enough number. If And I don't know if they've actually thrown anything out there. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But I do think that Patrick probably knows that there's a situation where he's going to need to field some offers to get a good sense of what his market value is. I do think he'll go back to the Cardinals and say, this is what my market value is. You know, this is the kind of stuff I want. And at this point, it's a little too early in the process to really know, uh, especially since the we still don't have any uh, concrete uh news yet on what the salary cap is going to be. So I think that's a big part of this. And I think a lot of players, including Patrick, are probably going to have to wrap their head around what the market's going to be like, not just Patrick himself on what he's could earn now, but just where the market is going to be for so many people. And with all due respect to Patrick, um, they're in a position where he's not going to be the first cornerback off the board probably I saw pro football focus had him as like the 13th best free agent quarter uh, cornerback on the market I don't believe that especially when they had Richard Sherman number two I don't see how that might figure out I don't know if that was based on their grades this year whatever it was doesn't matter point being that I, I think that he's going to have to wrap his head around what he could be owed and I think ultimately he wants to keep this door open because a, I do think he would like to remain in, in Arizona if he can. And B, he wants to make sure that all his markets are, are still available. And you certainly don't want to close any doors now. And if they haven't really talked numbers, which they probably haven't, because I think it is going to have to get a lot closer. And I do think there's going to have to be some things out there. And um, it, But this, this whole thing is, is going to be super interesting. And I do feel, and you guys can argue with me if you'd like, but does it not feel a little bit like, I just feel like given everything we heard when he wanted to be traded and kind of some of the things that he said over the years, I feel like Patrick has done a good job, especially for this situation, but I feel like he's been a lot more muted uh, or low key about this contract than I thought he would ever be. I thought he'd be a lot more demonstrative about wanting a big deal, about having earned a big deal, and I feel like he, he's certainly not going back. I mean, if you listen to everything he said on his podcast, he talked about what his resume is. He thinks he deserves money, but I don't feel like he's banging on the table for it. Like he kind of understands the situation he is. Now I could just be reading that wrong. Maybe his agent is telling him, 
you need to slow play this a little bit or don't do anything in the media and he's listening. But I just feel like I thought Patrick was going to be a little bit more out there in terms of being a little bit more upset that he didn't have a contract offer out there, maybe getting the money he wants. And I think that ultimately could serve him well if, if, these, if the Cardinals and he still have a chance to come together. That's an astute observation, but do you think it's because he's been there and done that with the supposed trade demand a few years ago that obviously blew back on him in the wrong way, ended up resulting in a lot of negative coverage and fan reaction? So perhaps he, he already touched that hot burner and got, <laughs> got stung, right? And he's, he's not about to do that again. And, and if he's going to maintain relations with the Cardinals front office and decision makers – the less he makes it public and he sort of demands like that, then better the odds are they would be willing to include him on future rosters. I would presume it makes it easier if he's uh, completely in and, and a team player in that way. I, I do find it hard to believe that there are that many cornerbacks that are going to be on the market who actually would be more desirable than Patrick Peterson. Now I get it. He's not the pro bowler. He's not the all pro type of corner. He was, but guess what? He's still the number one corner on the Arizona Cardinals roster. And, and if you're going to bring up Calais Campbell, well, Cardinals invested a first-round pick in Calais's replacement. His name was Robert Kandichi. That didn't work out. And so I've been on board since midseason that the Cardinals are going round one cornerback. And I'm still saying that. I still think, regardless of Patrick Peterson's situation, they go corner at number 16 overall. And then hopefully they go linebacker in the second round and they move on and they go maybe wide receiver in third round. That's just me. But it is far <laughs> from a guarantee. And right now the depth chart is so thin, Kyle, that you wonder if he has more leverage than we ever thought he did going into the assault season. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's definitely two ways to look at it. You can, you can use Calais Campbell as a great comp, a guy who – got a, a pretty sizable contract from a different team and played well for several years after the age of 30. And the guy that came to my mind on the opposite side is Darnell Dockett, who the Cardinals let go to San Francisco. I think he either got cut in the preseason or barely played and then retired and his, the end of his career came quickly. So there's, there's a lot of different things that can happen to players in their thirties and a cornerback, especially, I mean, you've got to be quick twitch. You've got to hang with all these physical freak wide receivers. And when that goes downhill, your physical skills, they can erode quickly. So the Cardinals really have to determine if Patrick Peterson can still be that number one corner and what you're going to pay him. Cause the last thing you want to do is give him $10 million a year and him slip even more next season. And then you have two below average corners possibly depending on what you do on the other side. Cause that's a recipe for disaster defensively. So I think it's a, a very tricky evaluation and one they have to nail because if you, if you have a bad contract at corner, that's not easy to get out of, you have to play him. But obviously if he doesn't hold up well against wide receivers, you're going to see it game in and game out. And you just don't have a lot of depth at cornerback because you pay the starters a lot of money and then you kind of fill in behind them and hope somebody can fill in for a game or two if needed. But if your corners aren't strong, you're, you're kind of in trouble defensively. So I think a lot depends on the evaluation first and foremost, and then what Patrick wants. But I do feel like 
he like, I agree with Darren. Like he realizes that he's not 27 years old anymore in the prime, a guy that's going to get a four year deal for 15 million, 16 million a year. I think he realizes what his age is, that his skills have declined a little bit and he knows he's not going to get top of the market money. Now the question is, can he get second tier cornerback money? And if so, does that come from the Cardinals? Quick aside on Dockett. Uh, I saw him on Facebook the other day and he's still working out. And that dude, he, he doesn't look quite as bulky as he did as a defensive lineman. Maybe he's a linebacker now, but oh my God, I would not want to like, I mean, he still looks like he could throw on the shoulder pads and crack some skulls. I always love Dave Pash's line about Doc. He looks like he's wearing pads when he isn't wearing pads especially his legs. He looks like he's wearing thigh pads. It's just those legs are just enormous. And uh, yeah, although Doc had the, the knee injury, remember he went down in training. Yeah, camp. he did. Never. And, that, and that was, a, that was a big part. And, and again, yeah. I, that that's all true. But again, he was frustrated because they wanted him to take a pay cut and he didn't want to do it. And then you start opening it up. And again, winding this back to Patrick is, you know, Patrick's in a totally different situation he's still a solid cornerback in this league, no matter what. So regardless of the money, somebody he, he's going to be playing. Now he, he said in his podcast, he'd like to play another six years. We'll, we'll see if he's got another six years in him, especially at cornerback. That can be tough. Um, maybe Jonathan Joseph told him a couple of things that, that can give him some hints on how to play that long. But, but again, you, you, you know, are you willing to, if you want to play six more years, are you willing to do it the last two or three or four uh, for minimum salaries, you know. What's remarkable to me is there are two corners in the NFL this year that shut down DK Metcalf, Jalen Ramsey and Patrick Peterson. The, those were the only guys who really shut down DK Metcalf. And I think when Pat gets frustrated, this is just my own assessment. It's when it's scheme, when there's a lot of zone, when he's not able to do what I think he feels he does best. One-on-one, mano-a-mano, travel and shadow, that guy, that number one receiver, that's when he's at his best. And I think that's when he gets fired up and plays his best is in those situations. I just don't know if it isn't a bigger guy, like a DK Metcalf, you know, even though he runs a ridiculous 40, he's just a matchup liability against some of those quick twitch guys that you'll see most of the weeks. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how realistic it is for him to shadow number ones. I think it definitely depends on the the talent and kind of the traits of the opposing wide receiver. He obviously loves doing it. He loves playing press man coverage, but he, it's, it's because he's always been this unbelievable athlete that can mirror the best runners and route runners and wide receivers in the world. Like it's crazy. The amount of natural talent Patrick Peterson has, but once you're not able to keep up in a foot race, then there's a lot of issues at corner because you can't play the press man as much. You have to back up and give them a little cushion and then the shorter routes are easier. So I just feel like cornerback is such a slippery slope where once you're not as athletic as the other guy, it's a lot harder. Even if you do have mental gains, you still need that physical kind of threshold to 
surpass in order to be a good corner. And I, I still think Patrick is there. I think we were so spoiled by him being unbelievable against Julio Jones and Calvin Johnson. Like he would shut down DeAndre Hopkins for a game and we would just shrug. Like looking back, that's amazing that he did all that stuff. And now he wins some and loses some and people are mad when he loses. And it's not, it's not an indictment on him because that's where he's at in his career. Uh, but I think it's a reality. And, and now we just have to figure out what he's going to be in 2020 because as good as he's been in the past, it doesn't matter anymore. Obviously, all that matters is how he plays moving forward. Yeah, you know, we we look and, and Jim Omohundra, our producer, points something out. You know, this is a guy who, let's face it, earlier in the year, how many times did he kind of more or less complain? You know, I, I think Patrick would agree with that assessment about how teams wouldn't just go at them straight, that they'd use the crossers and the picks to take him out. And then at the end of the year, he brought up that subject again, but rather than complaining a lot about it, it was more about I've got to get better at covering those. Now, I don't know how you do that necessarily when maybe your speed isn't there. And, and it's funny listening to some of these guys acknowledge some of that a little bit more is I think it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal to listen to it. I mean, I, I listened to Tyron Matthew last week uh, and when I was asking him and people were asking him about, you know, his career and I asked him about, Arizona and stuff and um, you know I think Tyron is still a little not a lot upset probably that the way things went down in Arizona but at the same time he acknowledges that he had had two knee injuries and teams were scared off from him and he even admits now as you get older and you can't run as fast or jump as high you have to get better in the mental game and to hear somebody like him admit that his skills aren't physically what they once were to hear Patrick acknowledge it, however, perhaps slight or in a different way, that the physical skills aren't one thing, what they once were. I mean, to me, that's a giant deal for a professional athlete. That's hard for those guys to do. So I, I do give them credit when they are willing to put it out there publicly. I think a sobering moment for Pat last season was when Buda Baker, in his words, got hawked by DK Metcalf. Because you know who else got blasted by on that full length of the field run was Patrick Peterson. DK Metcalf flew right by Pat P. And Pat P. sort of, you know, and Gallo's humor after the game said, yeah, I, I didn't have those young, fresh legs to keep up with that guy. And, and so I think there was a slow realization during the course of the season. You'd agree, Kyle? Yeah, and I, I think, like Darren said, it's it's nice that Patrick acknowledged it because that surprised me a little bit, knowing his personality where he's always kind of said he's Superman and he's not affected by anything and he, he feels like he's at the top of his game. So for him to kind of acknowledge that reality was uh, impressive to me. And I think when you bring up a guy like Tyree Matthew, I think his position just works so much better where if he has a little physical decline, Tyree Matthew's game is built so much on – mental awareness and knowing how to jump into in the lanes and and knowing where the quarterback's going to go with the ball because he's kind of this free-floating center field safety where Patrick Peterson a lot of times I'm mano a mano against your best receiver I've got no safety help and I just have to hold up and run down the field as fast as I can I just think it's a different type of position and that's why I think if if Patrick Peterson can continue to do it in these next couple of years that's going to be as impressive to me as what he was doing earlier in his career because the the physical skills might not be there anymore but if he can know what's coming and and stay on 
wide receivers consistently, that that's a testament to what he's done mentally to get to that point in his career. One, and just to kind of wrap a bow on this overall, and it, it, we're talking about, in this case, Patrick Peterson, but this, this works for everybody. And I've heard Michael Bidwell talk about this. I've, I've heard Steve Kai mention this. This is not a secret. You know, teams, when they give out contracts, contract extensions, that's for what you, they think you can be or still be. And players oftentimes want to get a contract that's based on what they've accomplished. And those are completely at odds. Um, you know, for what he has done, I understand why Patrick feels like he should get paid a certain amount or a player feels he should get a certain amount. Teams are looking this completely forward thinking. So it, it does, it's ultimately going to come down to, as we all kind of know, what the Cardinals feel like he can be and, and whether they can be a happy medium when it comes to talking to Patrick Peterson. Well, real quick, if we hit zoom out on the Cardinals defense here on Cardinals Underground, brought to you by Pacific Office Automation, proud partner of the Arizona Cardinals. Darren, should we get ready for a lot of change on that side of the ball? There could be easily two new outside corners. If Marcus Golden and Hassan Reddick go elsewhere, there's going to be another edge rusher along with Devon Kennard opposite Chandler Jones. I'm presuming Devondre Campbell will not be back. Isaiah Simmons will be a full-time starter. Corey Peters, what's his future now coming off the ACL? Uh, I mean, a stalwart on that defensive line. What do you do about that defensive line? Jordan Phillips obviously dealt with a lot of injury, didn't fulfill expectations there. Should we get ready for a more change than perhaps we initially anticipated? I think it's a fascinating question. I think there were times when the defense played very well. There was times when the defense needed to play better. Injuries played a factor. Um, but I think there's a lot of unknowns with what this defense is going to look like. I think you know who the safeties are going to be. I think it's going to be Buddha and Jalen Thompson. Uh, and you're, But the, the rest of it, Isaiah Simmons is going to be one of your inside linebackers. Beyond that, I don't know if there's a lot locked up. I mean, you, you think Chandler Jones is going to come back just fine, and I think Chandler Jones is going to come back just fine off that injury. But this deep in his career, there's always that little bit of nervousness. Okay, is Chandler Jones going to be able to – reach what he already had been and, and can Jordan Phillips fulfill that free agent contract? And what about rookies like Lucky Fotu and Rashard Lawrence? Can they give you more than they already gave you? You better hope so because you need them. And I, I think what this defense is going to look like, I think is again, a fascinating question. See, I don't really, I don't really think there's going to be too much change. I could see at least one corner, maybe both swapped out, but a lot of the other positions, I think, what you have on the roster now or what you had at the end of the season, I think it's going to be pretty similar, especially that if that front seven comes back next year with every single guy starting that was on the roster last season, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Son Reddick, though, isn't there always that one team after a pass rusher, the almighty, we got to get to the quarterback. Look what just happened in the Super Bowl where Patrick Mahomes was pressured on 29 out of 56 pass attempts. Guess what? His son Reddick's in line for Olivier Vernon money, even though the salary cap is, as I've obviously been reduced. That doesn't scare you at all, Kyle. It scares the dog out of me. I think he plays the type of position that you're willing to pay, and he's the age that you're willing to pay. So unless the Cardinals feel like it might have just been a one-year wonder type thing, I think if they believe in Hassan Reddick's ability – 
I don't think I would be that worried about forking over some money if you transition tag him or give him, give him some sort of thing for a short deal if you think he's going to get this huge offer in free agency or if you like him enough, give him a long-term deal and and be willing to ride it out the next three years with Hassan Reddick because from what I saw, I thought he was a perfect fit at that strong side linebacker and I would be excited to pair him with Chandler Jones and bring this different type of pass rush on each side, but pretty effective pass rush. So I think the Cardinals have more salary cap room than most teams, and they're going to be able to re-sign the guys that they really want to keep. And I'm not a talent evaluator, so I don't know how they feel about Hassan Reddick, but if they love Hassan Reddick, I wouldn't be surprised if they gave him a, a solid offer like they did with DJ Humphreys last year at another premium position where this guy's the right age at the right position, and we're, we're willing to give him a sizable contract. Well, look, there's a lot of unknowns. We don't know what training camp is going to look like. Will there be a traditional training camp? We still don't know due to the pandemic. Is it going to be an entirely virtual off season? I know that's what Roger Goodell was talking about leading up to the Super Bowl. Uh, do we know if there's going to be preseason games? Interestingly, Darren, he mentioned that they are planning on international games. So perhaps the Cardinals would resume that Mexico City trip that was on the schedule 2020. Otherwise, you know, for all the doubters, when the 2020 season started, I mean, think about it. You go back to the beginning of the NFL season and how many critics were out there saying, come on, you're going to play a full season of full contact football without a bubble. That'll never work. And they played all 256 games that got in the Super Bowl. So uh, it was interesting, you know, as, as to where we might be tracking in this offseason. But we do know the combine is most definitely going to look different, right? Yeah, the combine is not going to exist uh, in its regular form. Uh, they're going to try and make some of the uh, medical things happen uh, where these players are. So teams will have to go to them. There's going to be a lot more emphasis on pro days. Um, it's going to be a very interesting draft process, and I'm sure we'll get into it more in future podcasts. But um, how this all goes down, how much it impacts uh, the, the process overall, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I feel very confident in saying, however, gentlemen, that uh, there will still be guys that are picked that turn out to be really good. And there will still be guys that are picked that turn out to be bus. And we will be sitting here next year and people will want GMs fired and all this stuff. It's funny. You, we hear all the time about, you know, fans upset with Steve Kime and how the draft has gone. And I get where they're coming from, but I mean, I, I saw some, uh, Chiefs fans, especially right after the game, absolutely trashing uh, Brett Veach, the uh, the Chiefs GM. Uh, and and it doesn't matter if you again you go around the league, uh, except for maybe Jason Light, who's way up there right now because he won a Super Bowl. I'm thinking most teams are having some issues with their GM slash coach because that's how this works. There are 31 GMs who are bums. That's the way it works at the end of the season. We, we know all, all about that. Uh, and look, we said this going into the draft, and actually Steve Kime said it after the draft last year, being forced to rely more on the tape than ever isn't necessarily a bad thing. Just evaluating game tape and game film and not being as influenced perhaps by the three cone and the vertical and even the almighty 15-minute interview where every response is rehearsed with your agent, guess what? 
comes down to one thing. Can he play? And the best way to tell whether he can play or not is on the game film. So if that's the one measure you're going to use more than any other, more than any other year, because I mean, they had most of their preparation already, right. Already prepared. It was already done before the pandemic hit in full force in March last year. Well, you know what? I don't know. Maybe that reduces the odds of missing on guys. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be like Darren said, there's going to be hits. There's going to be misses. I don't know if, if this type of setup is going to drastically change a lot of things. I think you're right, Paul. Like you're not going to have as many testing numbers to look at or, or watching guys up close. I still think the 40 yard dash is important. I mean, if, if a guy plays well, but he runs a four, seven, five as like a, a tight end, you compared to a four or five guy like that matters or a, your favorite position, an inside linebacker, Devin White was a top five pick and he had elite measurables to go with his production. So I think, I think it's a balance and I think you have to have both, but it will be interesting as we look maybe five years from now, what these two draft classes look like. And if there were anything we can take from them, because you're right, it's completely different and definitely this year more so than last. Like you said, they did all the in-person scouting last year and, and saw mostly everything. We even had the combine this year. It's, it's been really weird. I don't, I haven't talked to any scouts yet. I'm interested to see what their year was like, but certainly it's going to be a lot of tape and even the tape is going to be limited because of all the cancellations and those teams didn't practice a lot. It's going to be a harder evaluation, but I kind of agree with what Darren was saying. It's still a big crap shoot in the draft. Like it might be a good thing to stockpile second and third round picks this year, because maybe guys will just be available and they'll hit there. That might've been first rounders in a different draft. We'll kind of see how it plays out in a couple of years. You know, in the middle of your answer, my ears perked up. It reminded me of this tweet from Ryan Clark, ESPN analyst, former Super Bowl champion, and I quote, you guys fill in the blank. If I'm challenged to a fight, I am asking blank to come with me. I need that type of energy. End tweet on Super Sunday. Hmm, which player do you think he tweeted about? Devin White is exactly the guy. <laughs> What has Paulie prognostication been saying here for a while? Find the guy with that kind of energy because, oh, I don't know. Even Kyler Murray recently said, for the record, that you didn't quite know what team was coming out of the tunnel week to week for the Arizona Cardinals. So once again, if you can somehow quantify that energy and that intensity, Kyle, and I know we're at odds here, and I don't want to end this edition of Cardinals Underground, uh, having it out on that front, but you can't tell me that Devin White wasn't the catalyst, at least through the playoffs. I saw none of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers regular season games, but in the playoffs, <laughs> he was the guy. Before, uh, before we do end this uh, edition of Cardinals Underground, Paul, I did want to, uh, you know, bring up the uh, untimely death of a friend of ours, uh, Pedro Gomez of a uh, ESPN and uh, formerly the Arizona Republic who, uh, uh, was unfortunately passed away suddenly on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, it's just, it's, it's been a very interesting time to be honest. Uh, I know there's a lot of people hurting out there because there's been a lot of people unfortunately dying in the world and in the United States over the last year because of COVID. So um, unfortunately he's, you know, this isn't a unique story. This wasn't COVID is not what got Pedro, but just with everything going on, Mike Kennedy, uh, the local lawyer, uh, who shared the, the first two Super Bowl committees of, of Super Bowls that came to Arizona. He passed away from cancer. 
even Kent Summers working at the Arizona Republic, he's okay, thank God. Uh, but he's about to go through triple bypass surgery and I'm worried about my friend. And then to, to hear the no, news of, of Pedro Gomez, uh, you know, dying, it's just, he, he wasn't, he was 58 years old. I'm not quite 58, but uh, I'm within shouting distance. And uh, it's, it's just, it's a difficult time uh, to, to realize you lose somebody like that. I think we can all confirm perhaps what people have read and seen from others around the sports world, just to, what a kind, generous person Pedro Gomez was. And that was, none of that is an exaggeration. I think we can all attest to that. I've known, I knew Pedro since the D-backs first spring training, hanging out with him in Tucson uh, a year ago or so, the last, before the pandemic, the last big Cardinals press conference. We're sitting there waiting for things to start. And I was in the row behind him. We were chopping it up about baseball dads. His son, Rio, was a minor league pitcher. My son's playing youth baseball and he's telling me what's to come in the next 10 years. And we're sharing the crazy baseball dad stories where everyone thinks their kid's going pro. No, your kid's not going pro. Although Pedro's son was the exception. And just, just the funny stories. Um, and to see that on Super Sunday was just beyond, beyond a jolt. And, um, you know, Kyle, I know that he was just so respected on the media side as well. I mean, he was multimedia before that was even a term. To be a beat writer, to be renowned, award-winning, to be a columnist, and then to be an excellent on-camera ESPN reporter, he covered all facets in our business. Yeah, you're right. He was really one of the first guys to make that leap that I knew of from the, the Phoenix area. And, you know, some newspaper guys, when they get on TV, sometimes that's a, a nice little boost to your ego and, and you walk around like uh, you're pretty important. And, and Pedro really never gave off that vibe. I, I didn't know him very well, but he was always very warm to me and, and just acted like you were his friend, even though I, I'd only talked to him a couple times, you know, he's just a, a very sweet person. And it, it was a shock it, his age. And, you know, we've seen him on press conferences this year, just kind of always interacting with him and to have him, you know, die so suddenly is just a, a crushing blow and definitely thinking about his family. I can't imagine what they're going through when, you know, he's there and then something like this happens. So I appreciate what he did for everybody in the media, always being nice to everybody and, and treating everybody well. I think that says a lot about somebody when you're in competition and you're trying to break the story and do this and do that. And he, he never let that get in the way of being a nice person. And that means a lot to me. I got a, a couple quick stories and I'll, I'll make them brief, but uh, so the first one always brings a smile to my face. Obviously Pedro's background was in baseball mostly, and he covered baseball for a long time um, before he ended up becoming a columnist at the Arizona Republic. And when he was uh, a columnist there, uh, he made a road trip, uh, a Cardinals road trip, I believe we're in Chicago. And, uh, it had to be weird for him because the Diamondbacks were in the playoffs at the time, I believe. Um, and so it was a playoff game. So it was on TV, but we're in Chicago and we're finishing up. And, and the way it used to work back in the day would, I spent a lot of time with Kent, the uh, aforementioned Kent Summers. Uh, and we usually go out to dinner after our work was done after a road game. Cause obviously we flew back, not with the team like we do now, but we were on our own. And we'd spend the night Sunday night. Well, I was done with my work. Pedro was done writing his column for the Republic. 
Kent was just finishing up. So we had a few minutes. So Pedro and I were kind of chatting and the, and the Diamondbacks game against somebody was on TV. And I knew Pedro's baseball background. I, I thought he was a baseball guru and uh, we're watching Schilling is pitching. I believe it was Schilling and we're watching this thing and Pedro's like, okay, he goes, he goes, he's got him set up here on this count. He goes, he's going to throw a slider, uh, you know, down and away, slider down and away. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty good. He goes, well, you just, you have to kind of know how he's setting up thing. This, this is going to be a fastball up and in fastball up and in. And he did this for a few more pitches. Oh, this one's going to be, you know, a curveball in the dirt, curveball in the dirt. And I'm thinking, holy crap, <laughs> this guy knows baseball so well that he knows exactly what's coming. What the F am I watching here? <laughs> and just, and I think I said something like, you are unbelievable. He couldn't hold it anymore. And he starts laughing. And we were kind of, you know, facing each other. And then the TV was up above us. And he kind of like gave me like this nod of his head. And I look over my shoulder where he could see where I, my back would have been to it. And in the next booth over was the telecast that was like 10 seconds ahead. <laughs> so he made me believe for like a minute that he could predict every pitch. And he just, he just had the, the best time with that. And then my other story was really the last time I got to spend a lot of time with him. As Kyle mentioned, he comes out to a lot of press conferences, but uh, the last time the Cardinals played preseason, we were in Minnesota in 2019. And there's a handful of us, Mark Dalton, Chris Melvin, and Mike Helm from the media relations group and myself. We often in the preseason, we, if we get a chance and if it lines up right, we'll go to a Major League Baseball game the night before a preseason game. Because oftentimes there's a game there and it's August, so it's perfect baseball time. And we'll go and hopefully get some tickets. And Pedro was there to cover Kyler's game against the Vikings and to do a story on the twins who were about to set a record for uh, home runs in a season as a team. So he could kind of double dip for ESPN. And we met him out there and um, we just got to hang out with him for the game. And uh, he took us around and me and Melv are both, we originally from Detroit, Michigan, and they were playing the Tigers that night. And, you know, me and Chris Melvin, Obviously, we knew of Jack Morris. He was somebody, and he's the color guy for the Tigers. So Pedro's like bringing us over to like meet Jack Morris, which for me, you know, I mean, that's a guy who I, I watched when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. And now I'm getting to meet Jack Morris. I thought that was really cool. And Pedro was like, he would do things like that, but it wasn't like, hey, look at me, I'm Pedro. I mean, people were noticing him in the stands, obviously. He's freaking Pedro Gomez of ESPN. And he was like, hey, you know, you know, he's 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 super nice and he would like engage them, but also at the same time be a little bit embarrassed because he, he wasn't that guy. Cause he was just Pedro Gomez hanging out with some of his buddies uh, at a baseball game. His patience was legendary. And I'll give you a quick story. It was the spring training when Barry Bonds was Barry Bonds and he was in the news for the wrong reasons and he was home run king and there was still all the fallout and Pedro was still following him on a daily basis and there we were over at Scottsdale and he had come out of the game early of course he wouldn't meet the media till after the game so I'm sitting as when I was doing tv me and a, and uh and the photographer for the station and we're waiting so now we gotta wait till the nine innings are done we wait Barry comes over at the end of the game hey guys um I gotta get some treatment I'll be right back Oh, he wasn't right back. It was a good 30 to 40 minutes. 
I'm on the phone to the station. Hey, can we get out of here? No, no, Barry's the story. It's the lead you're staying. Comes back after 30 to 40 minutes. We're all waiting. And says, hey, guys, um, I got to work out. Grabs his weightlifting gloves out of his locker. Walks away. The grumbling from the baseball beat writers, okay, was uh, considerable. Turns around, looks at us, says, guys, patience is a virtue. Continues into the weight room this tiny weight room spring training style. We can see him 30 feet away on the bench press. Comes back again, puts it away. I got a shower. We waited more than three hours for when he came out of the game to when he met us. I was at least an hour and a half to almost two hours after the game making us wait. And by the time we were done, it was the two main beat writers for the Giants, Pedro and ESPN, and yours truly. Because at that point, I'm like, Barry's not beating me. And I stuck <laughs> And whereas the three of us were irate, Pedro was completely calm the whole time. Say, well, this is the way it works in a baseball clubhouse, Calvisi. Get used to it. Or go back to football. <laughs> Here I am in football. Because that's the way, that's where I am. Oh, boy. So we obviously salute the memory and the friend that was Pedro Gomez, and, and what a legacy, not only in the business, but making all of us proud here in Arizona for more than two decades. Rest in peace, Pedro. That'll do it for this edition of Cardinals Underground.